I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... Web 1 was read-only, Web 2 was read-and-write access, and now Web 3, now you're adding the ownership. So if you think about Facebook or YouTube, what if they have a way to incentivize and give profit share to the creators? Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Today, we are joined by Terry Sal. Terry teaches entrepreneurship at Marymount University here in Washington, D.C. The beauty of Terry is that you can go far and wide with interesting topics that make sense for today and tomorrow. Examples? Cryptocurrency. What does cryptocurrency mean? Is it money? Is it not money? Is it a way to exchange value without using money or accepted ways of using money? Sure is. Blockchain. What the hell is blockchain? Is it a contract? Is it data? Is it a way to track what happens to your contract? Is it all the above? NFT, non-fungible tokens. Yeah, you've heard about it. NFTs like Mickey Mouse being sold for a gazillion dollars. But NFTs monetizes things that are digital. Am I confusing you yet? You bet your booties I am. But the beauty of Terry is that we can talk about stuff like that and apply it to the overall marketplace, which is my final one, DeFi. Decentralized finance. At the end of the day, what Terry and I end up discussing is the breaking down of the walls surrounding your big bank, your ATM card, cash, all the stuff we're used to. Decentralized finance, DeFi, is a big, big deal. And Terry and I dive pretty deep into it. Here's our conversation. Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. So, uh, so much to cover. Um, Web3, crypto, the DC market for startups, all that stuff. But let's start with the day-to-day. What do you do at Marymount? What's what's a typical sort of schedule, academic schedule? What kinds of folks are you teaching out there? Yeah, I'm teaching undergraduate. It's an entrepreneurship program. We develop uh, a series of uh, four courses, uh, anywhere from entry level to more advanced. The two advanced courses, one that I taught last semester, is basically uh, a simulation of YC. YC for YC. our listeners, yeah. Y Combinator, yes, sorry. This, um, uh... And then the second events course that I will be teaching the fall is how to look at the ecosystem funding investor perspectives. You know, some argue it's you can't teach entrepreneurship. You can encourage features of it that are already in the DNA of, of the target. Are you seeing that or do you think, have you, have you interacted with students where they were like, I never knew I had this capacity or I never really thought about this before. And you're awakening something that was not there before. I absolutely believe you can teach entrepreneurship. There's definitely genetic and attitude type of things that are either developed by nature or nurture. But entrepreneurship is such an experience base. You you can learn from the empirical data. You can learn from uh, past experiences. And many, many of the elements of success could be traced uh, to something that could be taught. Well, as you know, I I swam in the waters of entrepreneurship out at the University of Maryland for a bunch of years. And what in some ways was frustrating and and also obviously sort of predictable was a lot of the startups that the undergrads would come up with were, you know, T-shirts and, you know, (laughs) delivery to the dorm and and stuff. Very, 
very sort kind of, of non techy yeah, yeah, and very service oriented, um, and tough to scale. Are you finding similar outcomes, or do you think that the world is now so app driven and uh, and and, and mobile centric that there are more scalable businesses they're coming up with? Yeah, first of all, I should say I view entrepreneurship as more of a mind mindset, more of a skill set. Not necessarily, you don't have to start a company or even a successful one to be in, to be a successful entrepreneur. So from that perspective, um, I think it's more of a, a training through the, you know, through the process of how to develop that mindset and having the initiative to start something and meet the challenges of unknowns and uncertainties. So yeah, so we don't necessarily, and again, I, I'm also trained at MIT. MIT shares this, shared the concept of it's actually just as good to fail at what you started because that's the process of learning and getting to sort of the next step. So we would view the program to be very successful. If we provide the environment for the students to go through the training, understand the process, and whether or not they actually become a founder, to me, that's, that's less important. Well, as you know, I, I think I, I'm an angel investor and seed investor. I have concluded and it's been an expensive lesson, that you learn more from failure than you often do from success. Because uh, you can look back at failure and see exactly, I argue often, see exactly where sure. decision A, decision B, decision C, the outcomes from that. And if you could go back, right, it's the old decision tree. And that's very educational. Yes. Uh, there's, you know, just like a thousand roads lead to Rome, yeah. a thousand ways a, a startup could be killed. But I also heard a term that I thought was interesting. You know, startups don't fail, but the founder gives up. Ah. Um, but in some ways, there's a very strong element of luck involved. You know, mm -hmm. There's timing. There's who you may be talking to, both in terms of investors, partners, or customers that made a decision, uh, sometimes not necessarily rationally. And you just got to sustain and sort of cross every bridge when you come up to a river. Uh, sometimes you sort of have to swing through it or... Or, you know, like... Or drown. Or so, <laughs> yeah. The, well, the key is not to drown, right? Yeah. The key is not to drown. You know, it's a, it's a mindset. Yeah. Although sometimes you, you, at least I have dealt with entrepreneurs and I'm like, you know what? You, sh you should probably give up. There's, I mean, there's not... <laughs> this is... The finish line is so far from where we are That's today. Right. That's right. A and you and I both have seen startups that, that made a ton of sense and the timing was wrong. I invested in something called Six Degrees, which yeah. was Facebook before Facebook. Absolutely. Uh, and another company was Instagram before Instagram, but they're not Instagram and Facebook. Otherwise, we wouldn't be on the show together. You and I would be on my G5 jet headed to, uh, to, uh, to, to France, right? Uh, absolutely. A lot of the metaverse today oh, yeah. was, you know, was done Second a long life. time ago. Second life. Absolutely. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So the idea of, of teaching entrepreneurship, or at least encouraging it, and then having it not be necessarily the next app seems to be a really smart way to address it. Because what I've seen is 18 to 22 year olds are sort of in love with a mobile experience that can extend a service so far. But sometimes it can be very mundane, mundane businesses that can be incredibly rewarding. Are you seeing that as well in your students? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you know, when you're an undergraduate student, um, your life experience is rather limited. You know, I have a 20-year-old son. It's hard for him to have any deep insights yeah. about too many things. So, if, Well if, said. Yeah, so if, if, if you have to do a business that's limited to your own experience, it's hard. It's hard, yeah. yeah. It's very hard at that, at that stage of, of their life. 
So let's move up the scale from teaching to the environment here in the greater Washington area. Because last time I checked, the name of the show, by the way, is What's Working <laughs> in Washington. And our guest is Terry Sow. Terry, yes. an old friend of the show, an old friend of, of all of us in the Washington capital marketplaces. So what's your sense of venture capital in the DMV over the last 10 years? And particularly your thoughts on how COVID affected positively or negatively VC here? You know, I haven't been raising venture capital for the last, I'll say, maybe five years. So I would kind of give my observations from a, a little bit of a distance. So not necessarily firsthand. My observation is it's it's been difficult in the in the Washington D.C. area for for a long time, and a lot of that is because if you think about the big sort of the big disruptive technologies, we very much miss the the mobile app ecosystem. We very much miss the social media. Swing and a miss. Yeah. Um, and I think we also, I would say, totally miss the sort of the on-demand marketplace. So we're three for three here, damn it. Okay. <laughs> and I think one of the difficulty, of course, is lack of large, strong, non-government companies that are acquirers, you know, who could absorb some of these startup ecosystem companies. What's really nice about the West Coast, there's really no fear. You can start something and and the worst case is you get echo hired and you get a nice job at Uber or Lyft or Facebook or Google and you put your head down for two to three years and you come out swing, swinging again. Yeah. So m and I, I, I agree. The M&A marketplace, just remind, social media on demand, what was the first one you the said? Mobile, the, the mobile yeah, app. Mo- mobile, mobile app, yeah. yeah. So, um, which, which of course, uh, gaming, gaming is a big part of that. However, as we know, there's a lot of money funding things that are of, of interest to the federal government because it is a four trillion dollar customer right here within yes. five miles of where we or whatever of where where we uh, where where we're chatting. Yes, but so little of that. Maybe you're maybe you're seeing different. So little of that has scalable consumer appeal. Well, what's what's difficult also is it's you know if you look at the new entrepreneurs and you and I when just talking these you know these are younger generation you know these are democratized entrepreneurs that don't need a lot of funding to get started, and and that environment is just not conducive to to the government customers. You got that right, brother. Uh, they're looking for experience and reliability because you know nobody wants the. Boeing uh, fighter wing to fail, right? And right. that can be, and failure is, that's is right. not an option for the that, government. That, that's correct. So other than venture, from a larger perspective, private mm-hmm. equity, to some extent M&A, there's still some vitality. I mean, we see, we see some of that, particularly in, 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 in uh, GovCon. When do you think, if there is going to be a day, when do you think there will be a day when venture capital becomes, again, robust? And here's the final point of the question. As you know, one of the largest venture capital firms in the world is right here in Washington, D.C., New Enterprise Associates. So it's sort of like, what's wrong with this picture? Is the West Coast office driving all the behavior? And this is sort of like a quiet HQ or... So, and there used to be four or five venture capital firms, you and I can name them right now, that kind of are quiet. Yeah. Will they return? They're all quiet, right? Even NEA, I I was just talking to an entrepreneur yesterday and she mentioned that I don't know if NEA has done any deals locally yeah. uh, in the past couple of years. It's difficult because the venture capital world is also going through a significant sort of makeover. It's really difficult for the venture world to compete with what I would call the 
sort of new ways of, of, of raising capital. You, you may have seen the last 18, 24 months, these SPVs, and yep. I would call them really uh, democratized venture capital. Right. Where you could be a hustler. You don't need a fund. You just hustle. You, know, you hustle for a deal. You get cozy with the founder. You get an allocation, and you go fill it. Exactly. You can still get 2% management fee and 20% carry, but a lot of them start, you know, start with 10% carry, and then you you start building you start building your portfolio off to the races. Build your pipe, yeah. You build yeah. your pipe, and you're off to races. So, yeah. so the traditional of raising a 10-year fund, I would say it's it's really not that attractive. And by the way, as we know, if you look at the data, the private companies are taking much longer to go public. Yeah, I happen to be an LP at a couple of venture funds that are coming up to 15 years. You know, wow. it's supposed to be a 10-year 10 10-year 10 life. That would be longer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, it, it's it's been difficult for even for the, I would say, the VC industry to continue making the bets that are profitable enough for them to fend off this, I would say, the new wave of hustlers that aren't the traditional worrying vest, you know, type VCs. That's the, that's the voice of Terry Sow. Terry we were just talking about venture capital, SPB, special purpose vehicle, which Enron gave a bad name to, but still works. When we come back, Terry, we've got to dive into what Web3 means uh, yes. and cryptocurrency. Absolutely. A couple, couple of hot topics here on what's working in Washington. We'll be right back. taking a break to discuss some ways you might become a little more involved with what's working in Washington. There's several ways. Take a moment to rate us positively or negatively. We'd love to hear from you. Secondly, our audience is an obvious one. Folks that care about Washington, D.C. and the environs. Folks that care about the Federal News Network. Folks that care about our nation. If you'd like to have your message heard by that kind of audience, be sure to contact us for sponsorship opportunities. You can email me directly at walsh at AOL.com. That's W-A-L-S-H at AOL.com. Yes, it's a dated email address, but it still works. What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how business in the region is keeping us competitive. If you are a D.C. insider and want to know what leaders in other industries are talking about, we give you that insight. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. We want perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. You can reach out through our website or through Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you. What's working in Washington? I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We're here with Terry Sow. Terry's in the studio with us because he knows a lot, and we like him. And Terry teaches entrepreneurship at Marymount University right here in the Washington market, or the DMV, as we like to say. Now, 
we have two big topics to cover in our second half. So yes. we got to make sure we manage the time here, brother. Uh, one is Web3. Now, you have been a proponent and engaged in what Web3 means for a while. And I've heard you describe it in ways that is easy to grab a handle of. So the mic is yours. Tell our listeners what Web3 means. Okay. So um, I certainly did not invent this uh, explanation. I'll take, but I'll take go credit with it. for it. Um, Web3, a lot of people say uh, Web1. So I've got to, let's go back to Web1. Web1 is the, uh, is the broadcast publishing. It's one to many. Right. I tell you something and you listen. And just like the traditional newspaper. Uh, printed newspaper. And that's, so the browser that's going one. to the New York Times.com and reading the paper. That's correct. That's Web 1. And of course, uh, I would say in the mid 2000s, uh, started Web 2. Web 2.0 at the time came around because technology got better. The consumer devices become higher power and better bandwidth. Yep. So now the devices, and this some people are calling the creator economy today. Uh, we like can that. now we can now create content. So YouTube, Facebook, a classic case of Web 2.0, where the content is generated primarily. The value of the content is generated primarily by the creators, influencers. And now we're coming into uh, this many-to-many. -many, uh, you can think of business like a Yelp become really successful because yep. all these people have been able to write reviews. So that's that's a, that's a very classic case of Web 2.0, and what we're talking about Web 3, is Web 1 was read only, Web 2 was read and write access, and now Web 3, now you're adding the ownership. So if you think about Facebook or YouTube, that uh, that was a Web 2.0 business. What if they have a way to incentivize and give profit share to the creators? It, you know, just if you're Elon Musk, and I could certainly feel, you know, if I want Elon Musk, I would be like, hey, I make so much money for Twitter. Right. He's because got like, I have 45 so much, million followers. I have, right, or, I have yeah. so much influence. Yeah. Why wouldn't I be compensated for it? And or Beyonce if, or whatever. If I, and yeah. if, I'm, I, if I'm truly a big piece of the value of Twitter, maybe I should own it. Web3 well, is wait, wait, a way. Wait, 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 yeah. before we go farther. Okay. But wouldn't, if, if I'm Twitter, wouldn't I say, wait, wait a minute. You wouldn't have 45 million people following you if Twitter didn't exist. So is the argument not back that that the, you know, it's the old, uh, the, the medium is the message and the message is the medium. I, I get your point that, I mean, I'm not a big Elon Musk yes. fan and maybe we're not, we shouldn't be, but the fact that he should be compensated for the, for the heft he brings to Twitter traffic. But wouldn't Twitter say, you know, I, I built the goddamn thing, so you should be happy that you have a place to go? Um, is that a fair pushback or am I... It, it's a fair pushback, but I think from Elon Musk's perspective, you remember he thought about starting his own social media. Yeah, um, and he thought he, about buying Twitter. Right, right <laughs> before he thought about buying Twitter. So, so the point is, um, if he if he wants to be compensated and using Web three framework to do it, he certainly could. Very much the same way as you know Donald Trump could start um, Truth a, Social. Yeah, um, to, can start a social media. And if they set the incentives properly, uh, if you're a creator, and this is you know, a lot of talk about the creator economy, if you're a creator, would you rather own part of part of the upside? Yep. Or would you be a passive creator, YouTube or So where's the where's Twitter? the shining line between an influencer on YouTube 
uh, who was compensated by Max Factor for wearing that particular type of makeup, and she or he is showing how to use it, whatever, and getting compensated, and they can make some, as you know, some real dollars. It's a significant income. Is the shining line the ownership? Yes. Is that the difference? That okay. is the difference, yes. Um, literally owning equity it, in the entity. Yes, that they... that's correct. You, you, you own a share of the entity or the operation, and that is correct. And that, that's, that's done by, by crypto. Well, we'll get to crypto in a minute. So what are any, or if there are any, good examples that we, of Web3 behavior yeah. that our listeners might say, aha? So I would maybe explain the, the so far, the only, really the only, I would even call it killer app of Web3 is, uh, is DeFi, is decentralized finance. Got it. And, and the way I would describe it is crypto was really born out of the, in my mind, of the 2007-2008 uh, financial crisis. Yeah. I'm sure you've, you know, a lot of listeners have, have seen the movie, uh, The Big Short, yep. uh, one of my favorite. The, the market that's, that has a centralized power failed. You know, in this specific case, it failed because it didn't realize the value of the collateral that sits behind these real estate properties are out of whack. And why was it out of way whack? Out of whack. <laughs> it, yeah. was, it was out of whack. And blockchain and Web3 will be a great way to solve it. And the way you will solve it is by making the collateral to be acceptable in a decentralized way. Well, blockchain, okay, let's, let's go there. Here's, here's my theory of 2007, 2008, if blockchain had existed. I would have known, because it's transparent and, and immutable, locked in, I would have known how much leverage that condo had and who was participating in it and how risky me buying a condo and then relying upon the value of that condo being passed down 30, 30, 60, 70 cycles down in, in, the, in, the, in the leverage cycle that was way yeah. off whack. Wouldn't I have known more if blockchain had been around or am I like fantasizing? Well, it's it's the concept of decentralized intelligence. Okay. So the, the idea is this. Because the power that determined the value of the collateral was centralized and it was out of whack and it, it has derivative effects. Yep. So if the collateral was not properly valued, you can borrow more money. Yeah. If the collateral's value, its true value is less than what the what the loan amount is, and at some point, yeah, stop and do not pass go in this baby, right? That's right. Yeah. And at some point, it's going to fall apart. Yeah. And if we do this in a decentralized way, each collateral is decided by two parties. For example, you know, I have my iPhone 13 here, and if I said, Mark, you know, you would lend me a thousand dollars, and the digital representation of the the property of this phone is locked up in a smart contract. And if I don't return the $1,000 to you- I get you, the phone. You get the okay. phone. Yep. Um, and so what, what happens in a decentralized way is you push the decision-making to the end two parties who are making that decision. But 2007, you would pledge that phone to 15 other people, right? And I would have known that in a smart contract well, that, line that, arena. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's exactly So right. let's go to crypto because we touched on that and we only have, yeah. we have far too little time, <laughs> but let's- some people think crypto is a religion that is completely misguided, and all it does is is help drug dealers and sex traffickers and incredibly bad people. I happen to think it's not going to go away, and quote stateless currency unquote is going to be with us for a long time and get more and more reliable and regulated. Do you think crypto needs to be regulated to become acceptable across all platforms? 
uh, crypto goes hand in hand with the blockchain. Right. The blockchain has very limited use cases without crypto because if one party could keep a central copy of that database, what's the incentive for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of other machines or people to keep that same ledger? Little. Does the crypto has to go with this sort of decentralized blockchain architecture to be useful? Yeah. So the way I would describe it is if we look at use cases that are enabled by the blockchain, by this centralized, de decentralized smart contract, new, I would say the new paradigm, crypto has to be part of it. Now, the regulation has a couple layers, you know, because some people treat crypto as a fundraising vehicle. So from that perspective, it absolutely has to be regulated. Yep. Crypto, specifically NFTs, yep. is just, you know, effectively digital rights. And the concept of a smart contract is very simple, which is you can't lock anything in a smart contract unless it is digital, in, in its digital form. Exactly. has to be. So NFT really is just a digital representation of any other property. So we're kind of close to the end here. Yes. However, I think your important point is that blockchain and crypto are hand in hand and all probably always will be. Yes. And that the idea of smart contracts and even what happened in the crash in seven and eight that created DeFi, decentralized finance, all of a piece, they have to be intertwined to gain wider acceptance and to be a new way that we trade assets and track assets and stuff like that. That's right. Uh, I have now babbled significantly at our guest, <laughs> Terry Sal from Marymount University, where he teaches entrepreneurship. Terry, the last question we ask every guest. Yes. If you rule the world, yes. what would you start happening or stop happening or both? I would stop the right to, um, to some automatic arms. Um, I, I think that's gone too far. You know, I think mass shooting is turns into a, a very specific problem for our nation that is not shared by most other nations. So there, there must be something that needs to happen. I would at least stop the, or put some protective layers, whether it's software or uh, geofence or whatever the case might be. You know, right. if you have a, if you have an automatic rifle and you go within, I don't know, a, a thousand yards of a school, it, it should be disabled no matter what. I like that. Using technology to using wow. technology to yeah to, to make it work yeah smart weaponry that's right there's there's a lot that we we should do because too many people including our uh, future children have sacrificed Terry Sal once again using technology to solve our social ills Terry great answer and great to have you on the show thank you thank you Mark I'm glad to be here. You know, I often find myself wondering, what's great about Washington, D.C.? And then I'm reminded about our business, our government, our arts, our not-for-profits, our education arenas. All are fantastic and special, not only to our nation, but really to the world. I'm glad I live here. I hope you are, too. And I hope that our show continues to give you some enlightenment, some information, some actionable intelligence, and hopefully some enthusiasm about what works in Washington, D.C. So once again... Thanks for listening. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network. 
and streaming as a podcast.